Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. This is podcast number 22. Today we're going to cover a couple topics. We're going to cover, uh, we're going to do a little bit more about wheels and wheel history. And then we're going to do a little bit more about uh, some Giro d'Italia history. So let's get it going here with some wheel, some wheel history. So we know from our last podcast um, that uh, wheels were, uh, how long ago wheels were invented and the first wheels were um, wheels that were used uh, to roll kind of uh, goods across the land, and they were used kind of as logs at first. Logs were kind of wheels at the time. And then we moved on to um, to kind of solid uh, stone wheels um, and then or wood wooden wheels later that were all kind of heavy. And uh, eventually uh, spoked wooden wheels were used uh, for warfare and chariots. And we talked a little bit about that um, in podcast number 21. So, like I said, we know that the first wheels, um, not not bicycle wheels, obviously, were made of solid stone or wood. Um, they eventually evolved, evolved uh, to spoked wheels, uh, wooden spokes, um, and they proved to be uh, much lighter and more efficient uh, than solid wheels. Um, as wheels pertain to bicycles, the early versions um, obviously did not have today's tires. So um, before rubber, uh, the first rubber tires were solid rubber, um, and before tubes, uh, the tires were iron bands. Um, the iron bands, um, iron bands on wooden wheels so imagine that that's uh it's a little bit painful just thinking about it um so uh clement adder was uh granted the first patent for uh, rubberized wheels in 1868 um this was uh, a solid rubber tire uh and john boyd dunlop uh, invented the first uh pneumatic tire in 1877 to help his son uh while he would ride uh, his son would get headaches from the rough ride of iron tires. Um, what a thought, huh? Iron, pretty, uh, sound, doesn't sound very, like very much fun. Um, so pneumatic as a definition, uh, means containing or operated by air or gas under pressure. So, uh, Dunlop Pneumatic Tire Company was founded in 1889. Uh, by 1890, they began adding a tough canvas layer to the rubber, which greatly reduced punctures. Um, racers at the time quickly adapted, uh, adopted the pneumatic tire, and uh, speeds increased as, as well as ride quality. In 1891, Edward Michelin introduced the detachable tire. It was held on the rim uh, with clamps instead of glue, like the original tires were, and could be removed to replace or patch the separate inner tube. So kind of moving, moving on uh, with some tire history and wheel history, um, I, I got, recently got this book by David V. Hurley. I'm not sure how I'm, I'm saying the name right, but uh, it's about bicycle history. And uh, it's a really interesting book. It's got a lot of stuff about early bicycles and wheels, and I'd like to read just a little bit of it um, here um, about early, uh, early wheels and tires. So uh, let's see. Eox René may have been a, a plant manager. He was by all accounts an effective champion of the bicycle. His crowning achievement was no doubt the 80-mile Paris-Touraine road race, a precursor to the Tour de France over which he presided. Held for the first time on November 7, 1869, it was the most ambitious large-scale test 
of the bicycle ever undertaken. Thousands gather, gathered at the Arc de Triomphe early in the morning as more than a hundred velocipedists assembled for the historic journey. Now, if, just a, a little bit of a side note, velocipedes, velocipede is the early bicycle and it was, um, there's no drivetrain to it. It's basically kind of a big uh, piece of wood with wheels attached to it where you sit on it and run with your feet and let the wheels uh, kind of take you across the road as you run with your feet uh, on the ground. Um, seems kind of kind of painful to me if you think about it. And if you want to look up a picture online, uh, just, just Google uh, Velocipede and you'll get an idea of um, what kind of pain uh, the early, these early uh, bicycles or Velocipedes uh, uh, gave to the rider. So um, more than 100 velocipedists assembled for the historic journey, including many amateurs who intended to go only part way. The lineup included virtually all the top male racers, Miss America, and at least one tricyclist. Even a retrograde pedestrian later disqualified took his position, insisting that he could outrun the machines. Pretty funny. Um, the winner, James Moore, arrived in Rouen after 10 and a half hours in the saddle. Coping with rather, rather hilly terrain and roads, roads muddied by recent rain, the Velo Club of Rouen was on hand to greet the champion as were cheering spectators. His advance machine featured solid rubber tires and an oversized front wheel with ball bearings in the hub for smooth rolling. A dozen more racers drifted in before midnight and another 18 trickled in by dawn. In all, some 30 contestants successfully finished the course in under 24 hours. Eugene Chapis, editor of Le Sport, pronounced the affair a remarkable and brilliant performance. He foresaw a rosy future for this rapid means of, of locomotion to be built upon progressive improvements. In fact, Velocipede construction continued to improve in the 1870 season. The general adoption of rubber tires spawned another vital important and all an all metal wheel with tension spokes built on on the suspension principle although the carriage trade had repeatedly experimented with metal wheels as a possible alternative to conventional wooden wheels with little success bicycle constructors were eager to revisit this idea they recognize recognized that the metal wheel was ideally suited for the bicycle because it was considerably lighter than the wooden variety and also more elastic, both crucial properties that could further accelerate the bicycle and often on its bone and, and soften its bone jarring ride. Wire, wire reel wheels were also less likely to get out of true and easier to j adjust when they did. Among the first to devise a market for a practical all metal bicycle wheel was a master craftsman, Eugene Meyer of Paris. In 1869, he patented a system featuring individually adjustable spokes. Meyer's own wire-wheeled bicycles weighed just 40 pounds, easily 25 pounds lighter than a standard velocipede with wooden wheels. Meanwhile, other Parisian makers, such as Jules Camus and William Jackson, exploited wire wheels to build tricycles that weighed no more than conventional bicycles while offering greater stability. The highly advantageous wire construction was soon widely adopted in Great Britain, as well as where it became known as the spider wheel. 
So while while the wheels advanced it advanced to this uh, spoked configuration, we have to kind of take a pause here for a moment and, and talk a little bit about the importance of bearings. Um, and this is all also written about in the in this same book. Um, uh, when Albert Pope launched the Columbia Make in 1878, he was eager to let Americans know that the high bicycle was nothing like the old, discredited. Sorry, the old discredited velocipede. Indeed, English mechanics were largely responsible for a most remarkable transformation, having implemented three key innovations. These were spider wheels with rubber tires, lightweight steel, steel tubes, and improved bearings in the five principal moving parts of the front drive bicycle, the steering column, the two pedals, and the two axles. These all important fittings were what gave the high wheeler its seductively smooth yet solid feel. Now, when we talk about the high wheeler, we're talking about uh, kind of like a penny farling where the front wheel was huge and the rear wheel was small and um, the, the, the cranks and the pedals were a direct drive to the front axle. So the most important rotating part on the high wheeler was the front axle connected to the pedals. It acted much like a crank spindle inside the bottom bracket of a modern day bicycle. Mechanics had to figure out how to secure the front axle safely within the fork ends so that the wheel would not pop out, while still allowing the axle to spin freely. If the axle could not easily rotate, pedaling would be cumbersome. If the axle was too loose, pedaling would be inefficient and the bicycle would wobble. The ideal was a snug, easy rolling fit that required little attention. The first bone shakers were usually fitted with what were called plain bearings. The front axle passed through round holes in the fork ends, the, per the perimeters of which were surfaced with brass or steel for long wear. Nonetheless, the constant metal-on-metal -metal contact between the axle ends and the bearings, even with a liberal application of oil, eventually wore away the surface and created excessive play. By the early 1870s, English bicycle ma makers had discovered that a conical surface fitted with a matted socket made for a snugger fit that could be adjusted for wear. Even though the increased area of contact, contact created more friction, the idea proved advantageous, and these cone bearings were used in the first Columbia bicycles. In the late 1870s, English inventors found an even better solution, ball bearings. By inserting a ring of loose, solid spheres within two cylinder cups, two circular cups fitted around both ends of the axle. The axle itself rotated smoothly without shifting, and the system was easily adjusted for proper play. Ball bearings were not entirely new. They had been used sporadically in other applications for some years. The French mechanic Jules-Pierre Sure had even applied them to, bicy to bicycles in the early as 1869, notably the one James Moore used to win the Paris to Rouen road race but the first metallic spheres had to be made by hand and they quickly ground down under pressure. The technology had to wait, had, had to wait the development of steel spheres with extremely hard surfaces that could be produced with a series with, in series with great precision. American makers adopted ball bearings for their, for their front wheel in the early 1880s and they eventually found their way onto every rotating part of the bicycle. So as you can see, uh, bicycle wheels start to advance, and one of the things that becomes really important is having a good axle. 
a good axle and bearings. And while the inventions were great and the ideas were awesome, it took time for um, the ability to make this uh, these bearings and the surfaces that that we see today that we can adjust to precision um, versus the way the original axles were in a wheel. Just imagine that that axle just being uh, you know, hard surface on, on hard surface on metal with the axle and just kind of grinding through and not being able to adjust it. It really gives you an idea how, of how these, um, how these wheels or how these bicycles actually rode because the bicycle doesn't ride without wheels. So, um, kind of interesting. Um, so, uh, next week we'll move a little bit more forward and we'll probably, uh, finish up on wheels and we'll talk about some of the, the modern advancements, uh, of wheels into today's, um, multi-size wheels, um, wheels and tires and tubeless technology and tubulars and carbon rims and, and such. So, um, so that's all we've got for wheels on this week. Um, I'm going to move on now to the, uh, to the Giro, uh, the Giro d'Italia, a little bit of history. So the, the bit of uh, history that I'd like to cover today, uh, out of this, uh, excellent book that I, I bought, uh, the beautiful race, the history of the Giro d'Italia by Colin O'Brien is about the only woman to ever compete in a grand tour um, and it's called the devil the devil wears wool shorts um, the 1924 giro d'italia could easily have been a dud with all of italy's best riders striking in protest over payment there were no no big name draws and the peloton was made up of relative unknowns riding for themselves as independent and unsupported only by the race organization but having staved off disaster and proven a point to the protesting teams by promising provisions to the race's field of 90 freelancers. Armando Cunier, Emilio Colombo, in the 12th edition of the Corso Rosa received a massive publicity boost from the unlikeliest of sources. According to contemporary reports, the organizers stocked up before the first race, buying almost 5,000 bananas, thousands of bottles of water, more than 700 eggs, 600 chickens, three quarters of a ton of raw meat, and a host of other groceries. One thing that wasn't on the shopping list was a rider with two X chromosomes, but a female athlete was about to grab the headlines. In equal measure, both titillating and scandalizing Italy's patriarchal society some 21 years before women would even get the vote. Castelfranco Emilio is a small town on the road between Bologna and Modena, famous for being the birthplace of tor tortellini, delicious ring-shaped parcels of egg pasta traditionally stuffed with meat or cheese. It is less well-known for being the hometown of the only woman ever to ride a grand tour, but it was there that Alfonso Rosa Maria was born in the spring of 1891 to Carlo Mor Morini, and Virginia Marchesini, a peasant couple, the second of four daughters and six sons in the Morini household, young Alfosina Ina is a common diminutive in Italian, was a tomboy learning to ride at an early age on the bicycle that her father used as transportation to and from the fields. She was impressively, impressively fit and full of energy in a period when typhoid, tuberculosis, and malnutrition were a constant threat to Italy's underclasses. It was unusual to allow a girl to behave in an overly masculine way. The locals in Castelfreco Emilia were said to refer to, ha 
referred to as the devil in the dress, as she flew about on her bicycle with no attention paid to conventional etiquette, but her parents don't seem to have been too bothered by propriety. After all, Alfonsina, older, Alfonsina's older sister, Emma, had been born out of wedlock, and even that must have created some scandal among the local community of deeply religious peasants. And the Morinis weren't afraid of work, either because, as well as their own offspring, they regularly took in children from local orphanage in return for payment. But unconventional as they might have been, Alfonsina's parents were overly weren't overly enamored when they found out that she'd begun racing rather than attending mass or dedicating herself to becoming a seamstress. There was pressure on her to quit, but at 14 she married Luigi Strada, a local mechanic and engraver who quickly moved her to Milan and as a wedding gift bought her the best bicycle he could afford. He was by all accounts a modern-minded, intelligent man who saw his new wife's passion for cycling not, on, not only natural and healthy, but also a great opportunity. In one fell swoop, Alfosina had found a husband, a fan, a manager, and an escape from the crippling monop monotony of peasant life in Emilia Romanga. It was to be hap a happy partnership for many years, and Luigi proved to be capable agent and found fountain of constant support before eventually meeting a miserable end in 1942 when he died in an asylum for the mentally disturbed. Now, let's take a take a break for a second and just just think about that that guy, that man that that married her and and supported her through all this. Um, kind of an amazing person, um, uh, kind of a sad ending, but really just an amazing person. Um, some versions of the Strata story have it that she lined up at the 1924 Giro Incognito, cropping her hair and signing on as the more ambiguous-sounding Alphonsine. In truth, while her short and stocky build was indisputably boyish and her unruly curls were generally kept short, she was still very obviously feminine. On top of that, by the mid-1920s, any in inter international intentional deception would have been difficult to pull off because she was by then something of a star. By the end of the 20th century's first decade, Alfonsina had established herself as the leading female cyclist and was even given a special medal by Tsar Nicol Nicholas II at the Grand Prix of St. Petersburg in 1909. She also set a new hour record for women in Turin in 1911, posting an impressive 37.192 kilometers on the Monocolari track. For context, Lucien Petit-Breton set a record of 41.4 kilometers just a few years before in Paris. And according to Italian sports historian Paolo Franchinetti, Strada enjoyed several years of both celebrity and success in the French capital after a correspondent from the Gazetta recommended her to a group of entrepreneurs looking to add novelty and excitement to their track events. That loose connection with the Giro's organizers would be enough to question any suggestions of subterfuge in 1924, but there's more evidence that Cunye and Colombo knew exactly who she was when she lined up in Milan. She had, after all, competed officially in the 1917 edition, edition of the Giro de Lombardia, after Cunye himself had decided that was there was technically no rule for per, forbidding the entrance of female competitors. 
She finished that day dead last, an hour and a half behind the winner, Belgian Philippe Bies. But she did finish, which is more than can be said for some 20 sorry souls who had abandoned because of mechanicals, crashes, or sheer exhaustion. It was a performance that won her admiration and friendship of a young Constant Giordango, among others. Strada's presence in the 1924 Giro Peloton must have been the subject of some debate between Colombo and Cunier. There was the danger that the scandal of it would have a negative impact or that the gimmicky, gimmicky inclusion of a woman might devalue the race's reputation as a sporting contest. Ultimately, though, Colombo was in the business of selling newspapers, and there was no doubt that Alfonsino's exploits were the interest of reader, to readers. La Regina del Padivio, the queen of the cranks, as her fans called her, was allowed to stick around. For her part, Alfonsina wanted to do more than just make up the numbers or shift a few copies of the Gazetta. She was there to show what she could do. In her, camp her, in her campaign started well. Strada lost time to the leaders on the opening 300-kilometer slog from Milan to Genoa, but finished respectably, respectively in the middle of the pack. Likewise, on the following stages to Florence, Rome, and then Naples, she consistently arrived a couple of hours behind those battling for the general classification, but invariably ahead of many of her less gifted male counterparts. Things came undone for her on the H stage from Laquio to Paruga, when, the series, when a series of flats and falls left her painfully wounded and well outside the organization's cutoff time. Given that she'd made it to Perugia at all, one report claimed that she used a broomstick to mend her broken handlebars after one particularly bad crash. There were some, some among the race jury that wanted to extend a courtesy to the Giro's only female contestant and allow her to continue. In the end, however, the dissonant one, the dissonant one out for the Strada was, and Strada was officially disqualified. Unfortunately, there was a small victory. Given the courage she displayed, and no doubt with the eye on the newspaper revenue, Colombo offered to foot the bill personally for her room and board so that she might continue. She would be allowed to, to persevere to the finish to Milan, but would not be counted on the general classification. The rules had been bent to find a solution agreeable to everyone's, everyone's interest. This is Italy, after all. While Pittsburgh's own Giuseppe Enrique tightened his stranglehold on the race, which he went on to win, the 34-year-old Strada entertained the crowds all the way to the end, stopping for autographs and handing out photographs along the route before finishing the 3,613 kilometers, more than 38 hour, hours behind the winner. It was almost twice as far behind as the last recognized finisher. However, and once the heavy hitters like Giordano returned the following year, there was no desire on the organization's part to let her have another go. The gamble, however, had paid off for everyone involved. It filled ream after ream of newsprint for Colombo and for Alfonso, Alfonsina. And her heroics that, that year would later inspire popular stories of books and reach far beyond the boundaries of the cycling world. Strati used the fame to full effect, building a career from it and competing across both Italy and France for decades afterwards. In later life, she remained a constant on the Italian cycling scene, regularly attending races and entertaining the likes of Fausto Coppi whenever the great and the good passed through Milan. 
She died at age 68 of a heart attack when her bright red Moto Guzzi 500 fell on top of her outside of her home. She had just returned from cheering on the riders in the 1959 Trevale Versailles. So kind of a sad ending there, but really a, a very inspiring story um, and, and pretty cool. I mean, I never knew that a woman had ever competed in any of the men's grand tours and um, pretty inspiring, um, kind of a neat story. So I, th I wanted to share that. And with that, I would like to end today's podcast. And thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening.